0: Habits and Health episode 35. Welcome to the Habits and Health podcast where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. Brought to you by an educator and coach for anyone who wants to
1: create a healthier life. Here's your host Tony Winyard.
0: Welcome to another edition of the podcast where we give you ideas on ways you can improve your health. And today's episode, it's one of the best episodes I think that I've recorded is a guy called Pete Williams, who is a functional medicine practitioner. He has a company called Functional Medicine Associates based in London. And I invited Pete on because I wanted to have an expert to talk about the microbiome of the mouth. I think many people are getting to know a lot more about the microbiome of our gut health but the microbiome of the mouth isn't something that most people are aware of and it's something i wasn't aware of until a couple of months ago and as i've learned more about it i realized there just was a lack of information around them and it's something that is so important and it is really would be helpful to so many people if they knew more about it Pete is a real expert in this, and we'll hear a lot more about his expertise and how that came about during this episode. We also dig into what is functional medicine and integrative medicine and behavior science and many other areas, and how he sees medicine developing over the next few years and it's a, as i said it 's a really fascinating episode, maybe one of the best episodes that i've done in the three years i 've been doing this podcast, so really hope you enjoy this episode. Sit back and enjoy. With Pete Williams, a functional medicine practitioner in Harley Street in London, habits and health. My guest today is Peter Williams. How are you doing, Pete?
2: I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me on.
0: Uh, well, it's I'm really glad you're, you're here because I, uh, as I was mentioning to you before we started recording, I, I thought I'd love to have an episode on the about the microbiome of the mouth because it's something that when I mention it to people, they don't what what's that? They've a lot of people are now hearing about the microbiome in the stomach and so on but the mouth it seems that most people aren't familiar with this at all and i know it's something that you're quite familiar with to say the least yeah
2: that's right do you want me to uh, expand on that a little yeah, bit yeah good.
0: why not why not
2: well look i i, I think i suppose that probably the best place to start is getting an understanding of of who we are as humans and i think that's a really good place to start because um, if we look at how we're made up purely from, from, a, from a cellular perspective and the amount of cells is that humans are actually slightly more bacterial um, than, than human cells. And, and so the, the term in medicine that we use for that is, is, is holobian. And what halobion is defined as is um, different species occupying the same vehicle or body for the greater good of, of, of all. Right. And, and that is what a human is is that you know we carry on every sort of surface bacteria hmm. um, and and they want to live in a really nice house um, and a really nice home and and so what they do for us is they try to protect us hmm. and, and and so again, you know when we 're dealing with patients and we 're talking about microbiome and bacteria, the first thing you know we we have to understand is that. Purely from the the amount of cells, humans are slightly more back, made up by bacteria than they are human cells. So, so, in a in a very simple term, when you're understanding, well, why do people get sick? Is that some of the question? One of the fundamental questions that we ask in our practice is that maybe actually the bacteria aren't in as good a shape as we would like, and therefore, mm-hmm. if they're not, they can't do the job that they need to do for us, and that's help us protect us. Um, and therefore, you're going to get sick. So I, I suppose that leads us into understanding where most of this bacteria lies, and that's in the gastrointestinal tract. Hmm. What's really interesting about the gastrointestinal tract, it is just a hollow tube. So, hmm. you know, how we look at it from, from an anatomy perspective is that it's actually not out it's not inside the body because mm. obviously when we're looking at what is inside the body is that you know if we tony if we we pulled your gastrointestinal tract which starts at your mouth and ends at your bum mm. if we pulled it we'd be able to see all the way through it was a hollow tube but mm. it's an incredibly important tube because in, in 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 what we've learned is that this is where humans fundamentally talk and, and have to protect against the outside world Right. Uh, and, and so this is why you've heard the, the lines that 70% of the immune system resides the gastrointestinal tract. And the answer is that it, it absolutely does. And mm. that is because that huge surface area, which is bigger than um, a doubles tennis court, if we pulled it apart, is where we're interfacing and, uh, and, and talking to the outside world. And, and we've got this huge border force predominantly made up by bacteria. That are literally uh, second by second, minute by minute, in in this uh, in this engaged in this war of such enormous numbers from a point of view of bacteria and what they've got to defend against that it's it, 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 it's 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 uncomparable. Mm. The point about this is that this is where. We start to hear about the microbiome and what the microbiome is, but and that predominantly, you know, is usually talking about you know, our small intestine and our large intestine, where most of these bacterial species reside. And we think there's actually, um, there's some reports that there's probably around about two to three pounds in physical weight of bacteria that are, are residing in our gastrointestinal tract. Mm. But one of the key battlegrounds, of course, is the mouth um, and why we're, why certainly ourselves as a practice uh, have spent quite a lot of time looking at that and researching that and actually developing some, some, um, some testing and some courses around that is because, number one, it's the first port of call where humans, in a sense, start to interact with the outside world and start mm. to defend that from the outside world and, and also have this capacity to start... Deciding what they're going to do with, you know, in in particular with food, you know, is this friend or foe, etc. And so that starts in the mouth.
3: Hmm.
2: And what we're learning about the mouth is that it has the second most diverse um, microbial um, density and species, only second to what we're seeing in the gastrointestinal tract. We're also what we've also got to consider is that the mouth is really not separate from from the small intestine, and large intestine, and the colon. And it is that first port of call with some of the major battles of how humans defend against the outside world reside. And, and so we've been, as a, we've been as a group really interested in, you know, what some of the newer mechanisms or understanding in medicine that um, can make people sick or can be very much associated with increased risk of pretty much all chronic disease. And that is really about how humans, um, how they are as a host. And, and that, is all, that is about the genes and how, the, how people can have different gene variants and whether that's good or bad. But, it, but importantly, how we're going to respond to what I like to say, soldiers on the battlefield, which comes into the sort of understanding of the, the microbiome of the mouth. But importantly, some of what we call the, the periodontal pathogens. Certain groups of bacteria that, that can actually be quite destructive to humans and go on to lead them down the, the line of gum disease, periodontal disease. And I, there's, there's many reasons why why we got into this, and I'll, I'll go into that in more detail. But I just want to give you some of the – obviously, we have a chronic disease practice, but functional medicine practice in central London and the the and and, and we we follow we have to follow the science and and there's some really disturbing science that comes out to show there's a recent one um done in 2018 um, in, in looking at u.s populations and what we're finding is that um, over 50 percent of the u.s population over 30 years of age has some form of um, gum disease so mm. It's huge. And, mm-hmm. and what we're learning from that is that um, what stays in the mouth um, doesn't – so what happens in the mouth doesn't stay in the mouth. And th- th- what we're seeing is that if some of these um, bacterial pathogens have the ability – they use the word translocate. So have the ability to move from the mouth um, to distal sites of the body, whether that is the brain, whether that is the joints, um, whether that is the, the arteries – then we're going to see these very much increased risk of problematic associations with every single chronic disease. So we're we're very much interested in, number one, the microbiome of the mouth, understanding whether that in in any one individual is in good shape or bad. We're we're very much interested in testing for and looking at, um, are there any major pathogenic bacteria there? And of course, if there are, what are the numbers? Then we're really interested in, well, how does, the, how does the host respond to potential pathogens, you know, and, and what is the sort of immune signature of this individual, and what are the consequences of that? Because, again, there's, uh, these run into some of the mechanisms that we're understanding about what can cause and accelerate chronic disease, whether it's obesity, type 2 diabetes, whether it's Alzheimer's. I mean, the Alzheimer's research is, is horribly scary. And, and that is, again, is, is this aspect of understanding that when you have a barrier breach, as you do with gum disease, and that might be you know a bit of gum recession, teeth bleeding, it might be actually more advanced where you're starting to lose your teeth because you've got periodontal disease. And again, we know that 50% of the adult population in the UK over 40 will have some degree of established periodontal disease. You've got a barrier breach. And so that means that the the chances of some of these pathogenic bacteria slipping through that barrier beach um, inside the body um, is going to be problematic. And when that happens, um, those bacteria can travel to many, many places. I'll give you an example. Um, Despina, who's one of our associates, she she just uh, last year did a research degree at King's College, really looking at um, uh, a... Um, a a, a pathogenic bacteria in the mouth called Fusobacterium nucleatum. And what we've learned on that one is that that bacteria has been found in breast cancer tumours. Now, it's Mm. crazy, isn't it, to think, well, how does an oral bacteria end up being part of the puzzle of someone's breast cancer? Mm. And the reality of that is that that bacteria is translocating through borders that have been breached and ending up there And when that bacteria gets there, the immune system in the breast starts to say, "Mm, you definitely shouldn't be here. You're not normal. And then, of course, when the immune system responds, it responds with inflammation. It responds with oxidative stress and with that immune activation that causes not only localized damage, but slightly more systemic damage. And and and, the, and that's one of the major principles that we're learning to understand about when bacteria get the, have the opportunity to translocate to different areas. And so we really got into this. I got into this personally because at 45, seven years ago now, I always had great teeth. Tony, you know, visited the dentist um, twice a year and the hygienist, um, had a little bit of gum recession, but always told I had great teeth, started having a problem with the back tooth went to the dentist who had been going for years and she said to me, well, Mr. Williams, um, you know, that back tooth is going to have to come out. And I said, well, okay, it's fair enough. You know, I've got pretty great teeth. You know, why is it? And she says, well, you do have pretty established periodontal disease. And so not only was that a shock from a point of view of someone who works in, you know, I suppose in integrated medicine, um, never wants to be told they've got a disease. Um, I was just shocked because, more because, Tony, I really didn't have a good understanding at all about what periodontal disease was. And that's been our seven-year journey to become really quite specialized and, um, and I'm really good at understanding what are the implications from this. And mm-hmm. I, I think what that revealed to me, um, of course, leaving, I remember leaving that um, uh, dental appointment, huffing and puffing home, thinking, I've got no idea what this is. And of course, you know, your first port of call is straight onto PubMed. Um, and really sort of delving into the literature. And that just completely opened the rabbit hole because all the literature is there and has been around for 30, 40 years. And that was the understanding of, wow, the periodontal disease is a, is a local disease that has very systemic effects. And so I look back at all those patients that I've had you know, over the past decade were I've done a good job, but maybe it wasn't a perfect job. And I didn't even ask the question about, you know, the dental health and get an understanding of that. Mm. And so that is something that we do now of just standard of care when people come in to see us because the relationships um, are so profound that we cannot ignore it. Mm. Um, And, and, you know, hence why it's been so important for us to, we've actually wanted to really understand that host-microbe relationship and we've gone on to, and develop a, a genomics panel with um, a genetics company because we're so keen on on making sure that we, we, we understand what the battle looks like for this patient and how we can manipulate that battle so that we, we can keep everything calm. If we reduce the bacterial load in the mouth, then we reduce the risk of um, you know implications in chronic disease, and you know for a practice that deals with obesity, type two diabetes, with autoimmunity, with you know early stage dementia, this is absolutely crucial that we're onto this and asking mm. our patients this based on the literature. And mm. so you know that's why for us, and and again, I, I know we're talking about the oral microbiome. I don't see it as separate, but you know we are definitely. We definitely change the way we speak and think about our patients now, because again, if it come, we see many patients who have been really well looked after conventionally, you know, you look at what pe- people come to our to our practice, and they've been to see many people before, and those people have done a really great job, but maybe they just didn't ask certain questions. and for us sometimes, many many really sick people are sick because the microbes are sick. Right. The bacteria are not in, they're not in the best of shape. Mm. Um, and that question's not even been asked or thought about. Uh, and so sometimes we just see people who have multisystemic dysbiosis. And that can be ear, nose, and throat. That can be mouth. That can be small intestine, large intestine, colon. That can be vaginally. We see a lot of that. Um, you know, the urinary tract, again, we're, we're moving into this area now that every single part of your body has some kind of microbe family there, groups there, species there. And so, you know, we always think about that. We always come back to that fundamental point that you are more bacterial than human cells. And so we've got to at least explore that side. And, of course, exploring what is happening in the mouth is really crucial for us, and so that's as you say. That's um, that's what we've gone on to explore, and it's really opened a new world for us. It's opened a new world with dentistry, which again, w- what's exciting about that is that I think there's a lot. There's a change in dentistry because they can't they can't ignore the science. Hmm. They can't ignore the science of how important their role is with regards to chronic and systemic disease. Hmm. I mean, I you know I almost feel as though. You know, I use the line that, you know, maybe going to the dentist is as important as going to the gym because I think that, you know, that you could look at the literature and go, I've got if I've got poor dental health, the detrimental health outcomes that may come from that are as bad as not doing any exercise. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's, I also find it in, unfortunate because it's another situation. It's another rabbit hole that we never thought about and, you know, and we're going to have to. And Mm. this comes back to, you know, almost the simplest aspect of you're going to need to start cleaning your teeth well, and you're going to need to think about your diet, and you're going to need to think about everything else that goes with that, because Mm. if you get that wrong, you're going to be accelerating some of the chronic diseases.
0: Mm. And
2: so um, we we did a really brilliant case study of myself and a, and a, a dentist called Dr. Victoria Sampson. We did this really love we had this rheumatoid arthritis patient who wasn't getting any better, um, actually had been to see a really great um, functional medicine clinician who had done a really good job systemically looking at this patient. But her rheumatoid was, was getting worse, um, not better. Uh, a lot of her inflammatory markers were getting worse, not better. And for, again, for no fault of this clinicians, and again, seven years ago, I'd probably be in the same, same situation. He just never asked her about her dental health, and of course, this is a patient with really quite advanced um, periodontal disease. Mm. And so, for me, it was the complete ah. You know what? When she came in to say to see us, I said, "Look, I think, I think the elephant in the room here is your dental health, mm. and we've really got to get on top of that because of the relationship with rheumatoid arthritis and periodontal disease. Very strong um, relationship with both of them, and we need to get on with it. But we need um, a dental expert who thinks the same way that we do and understands what I require. Mm. And so we did, and we did a really great job. And um, pretty much within 16 weeks, we had put her rheumatoid almost into remission where she just isn't a patient that believes she has rheumatoid arthritis anymore, which is fantastic. So we're not getting, um, we're not getting any more flurs with her. And if she does flare, she doesn't feel them or inflammatory markers are all down. Now, does that mean that 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 patient is always going to really have to do the work that she did and continue to do the work because her mouth is so compromised that, you know, the battlefield is always raging and the, the, if you like, the barrier breaches are always there because of Mm. where she is. The answer to that is yes. Mm. But I think what we did is that we looked at that and, and, and showed how quickly that we can remiss someone's disease that is not associated or, not normally associated with what is happening in the mouth, and we were we were we were very lucky to actually present that case study at, at quite a large conference um, a few months ago. So we're sort of we know we're on the right tracks with this, and we know we've got a sort of um, a process and a strategy where you know any chronic disease you've got to be thinking about that bigger picture, and importantly having that um, thought about you know just asking the question you know how. how how good is your dental health and, you know, what do you need to do? Because it really is that important. Uh, and I think if there's any real simple message from here is that um, understanding that you clean your teeth correctly and you use flossing and you go to a dental hygienist and you go to a dentist is really actually cr- really quite crucial, particularly if you have family history of susceptibility to losing your teeth, et cetera, The likelihood is we're going to see uh, a, a a patient that is more genetically susceptible uh, in the mouth on on that side so so that's how we got into it
0: there's so many questions going through my mind i, I yeah you know, after what you just said and one of the things that i'm thinking is, is, is it very much sounds like there should be a much closer working relationship between if you whatever a patient, whatever doctor a patient has and a dentist a patient has, there should be a much closer re- working relationship between or passing information at least between a doctor and a dentist.
2: Yeah. And I would say that that has been a struggle. I think it continues to be a struggle. And I think we've got to be very selective about the dentist that we use on that because there's mm-hmm. no point to us going to a dentist. And it's really, again... Tony, I think this is just. Um, I suppose you've got two sides of medicine, and you know what I'm not going to do is slag off where we are with conventional medicine because I've been in the I've been in the in the health industry long enough to know that humans and human health is so vastly complex, is that you could spend your life in a very blinkered section of medicine and never ever need to look out of that because it's so vast. So I understand that. Mm. Um, and I also understand for dentistry that it's almost like, holy cow, well, my role is only to do what's in the mouth mm-hmm. and not to worry about anything else that goes on systemically. And mm-hmm. um, so I understand that as well. But I think what, what where I think the, the, um, the field is changing, and I rather hope that the training that we've built, the genomics tests that we've done, and, and is encouraging a dental hygienist and dentist to be able to have some degree of being able to step into that area to get that understanding about you know how do we work together with this how do we how do we you know not only solve what is happening in the mouth but but go some way to help this patient's medical condition and also sort of inform dentistry that you know you know is your patient coming in is your patient a type 2 diabetic is your patient a rheumatoid arthritis patient and what is the association with what's happening in the mouth there and and try and connect that up i believe that it's it's happening much more than it was hmm. um and i do believe that over time this will become more and more um normal um as people just and and I say that is because you you know the, it comes down to fundamentally you cannot ignore what the science is telling us, and mm. the science always guides us is to say, wow, I mean these relationships aren't just a little bit associated, and they are just uh, the the numbers are huge. So and, you know and a lot of these now are pointing to direct causal mechanisms. Mm. I think you know if you look if you look at. Um, um, the research group at uh, Texas Tech, the research group at Vanderbilt in in the US, they consistently have written papers looking at how bacterial pathogens are translocating into your arteries and being a direct causal mechanism in cardiovascular disease, which Mm. again is changing the way that we are understanding how humans get cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how everything all gets lumped into that, and mm-hmm. you know, so how we're looking at how, how humans get cardiovascular disease now is, is completely different. Of you know what we thought it was just you know cholesterol and lipids, you know, fifty years ago, it's completely different.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, and one of those mechanisms, one of those arms of, of that is when you have a pathogen that has got into a place that it shouldn't do, your immune system tags it and goes to war with it. And doesn't mm. discriminate. When the immune system attacks, it attacks with chemical warfare, it attacks with inflammation, it, it ramps up oxidative stress, and they all create this peripheral damage.
3: Mm.
2: Um, and that's the thing we've got to think about. And so, you know, even again, when we're talking about cardiovascular disease, you can see adverse lipid profiles on people that are down to infections in their mouth. Mm. And so again, it's this deeper and deeper, deeper understanding with regards to, well, what's causing what Mm. Uh, and how do we stop that? And so Mm. this is why when we come back to fundamental basics and trying to tell our patients, you know, how do we dress this up in a story? It is the story of the battlefield. It is the story about you've got to have when we're talking about microbiome and the microbiome of the mouth is that in general, you want to have more, more good guys than bad guys. And mm-hmm. um, you want to keep that ratio. And also we want to understand whether we've got an individual that, is, that has an immune system that is... And, and, and again, I think this is one of the other things of, of understanding about humans. And I say particularly with COVID and, and slightly going off here is that most of the COVID patients who have had the more severe complications of COVID are the ones who tend to have the more aggressive immune systems. Mm-hmm. So the immune system you don't need to build a stronger immune system with them. You actually need to make sure that you're calming their immune system down.
3: Yeah. You know,
2: and, 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 and so these are the things that we're learning. Again, periodontal disease and, and, and inflammatory diseases like that are usually from an immune system is actually a little bit too good at doing its job. It's a little bit too aggressive and actually needs calming. So what I like to say to our patients is, look, what you want your immune system like is the 50-year-old bouncer who controls the outside of the club. You know, he's had 25 years of what happens outside. So he knows that the, the first-year students at the local university, you know, all right, they've had a few too much to drink and probably, you know, causing a little bit of strife outside the club, but they're not really going to be problematic.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and, and so you're not going to need to overreact. But, of course, the new bouncer who's 22, hasn't had that experience, mm. that's the one who's likely to overplay. And yeah. so, so, again, you know, again, this relationship that we understand with, with, with bacteria and this relationship we understand with um, barrier breaches and what are the complications and the consequences of you know, bacteria that move to other places. And, again, you name it, joint surfaces, um, breast tissue, um, very much one of the areas I'm interested, which is which is brain, um, and again, if we're looking at what we're understanding with the Alzheimer's research, a lot of the um, the proteins that uh, give us a determination of Alzheimer's, and you know, just to be clear, is that you can't get a true definition of Alzheimer's while a patient's alive. You can only say it's suggestive of Alzheimer's. Um, we're learning that these proteins that eventually cause the Alzheimer's are actually the brain's immune system trying to protect the brain against invaders. And the brain has this blood brain barrier. So it's a bit like another castle wall, a bit like the mouth. And that castle wall has to be monitored and that castle wall has to be um, guarded. And of course, you've got to have pathways where you're allowed to come in to deliver things that the brain wants, but also take things out. So if you've got a, a blood-brain barrier that has been compromised, this is where you start to see some of these oral pathogens getting into the brain. And, and as you say, we're we're quite hot on that. There's one in particular, um, an oral pathogen called um, Porphivores gingivalis, which is creates a, a lot of problems, not only on the blood-brain barrier, but, but within the brain. And so The Alzheimer's research, I'm not saying it's it's changing, but it's very much thinking about, well, is Alzheimer's a disease that is genetically led and lifestyle led, which there's a strong component of that, but also is Alzheimer's a disease where there is a barrier breach? and And while that barrier is consistently breached, things will come in that shouldn't be there, and your brain is having to try and make these protective proteins defend against the brain which it does Mm. the problem with that long term is that that becomes the problem
3: Mm.
2: and so these are all the interesting aspects of how we try to deal with patients and try to get that understanding of the mouth so if we have a patient again maybe it's a um, it's a patient who's showing cognitive decline and that one of the major questions that we will ask and test for is what's happening in the mouth Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll want to absolutely have a bacterial profile there of potential pathogenic bacteria because we know that relationship is so strong. And what we also know is the barrier in the mouth, the barrier in the gastrointestinal tract, the blood-brain barrier, are are very similar structures. They might not be the same, but how I try to explain that is that imagine they're all castles. They might not They might not look the same, but they are all castles, and so mm-hmm. how they 're structurally set up, how a lot of the proteins that protect them are quite similar so if you've what we 've learned on the literature if you 've got a barrier breach somewhere, the mouth or the gut, you are increasingly likely're more, more likely to have a barrier breach at the brain right. and so you, when you start getting you know a patient that has um you know oral health problems has gut problems. And then you're seeing all these sort of neurocognitive issues as well. You start to think, okay, how much of that is down to barrier breaches and do we need to think about that and do we need to test for that? Hmm. So it really, again, continues to bring us down to how important keeping good dental health is. And, and I mean, I know it in particular because as I said to you, I am one of those susceptible individuals. I am one of those susceptible genotypes. And Hmm. so you've got to work really hard. I have to work really hard. To And I've done, I've done an absolutely fantastic job of reversing my periodontal disease,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but I'm always susceptible to it, right. and I'll always be susceptible to it. It's just the way it is. The genetics dictate that. and um, Various other aspects dictate that. So I've got to work really hard on that aspect mm. to not only reduce that risk but also reduce some of the other risks from a point of view of the other chronic disease aspects. Mm. And so, again, very much interested in this area. But it does become another one of those rabbit holes that you, you weren't aware of and now you are and you think, God, am I ever, are we ever going to get to the stage where, you know, we, we know enough. I think the answer to that is absolutely not. There's going to be something else that comes up that, again, means you've got to think about your patient in, in, a, in a very different way again.
1: We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you are looking for deep support to create the health and life you want, we invite you to consider one on one coaching sessions with Tony. Coaching sessions give you personalised guidance to fit your unique goals and life situation. Only a limited number of spots are available, but you can easily get started by booking a free introductory call at TonyWinyard.com. Now back to the show.
0: Before we started recording, you, you talked about. Um, I mean, you've been in functional medicine, integrative medicine for what was it? I think you said twenty years now. And yeah, just, yeah, twenty-two function.
2: years now. Yeah,
3: yeah.
0: And and in that time, you've seen the the increase in the number of people operating this way in in the UK. And I'm wondering, is it the same slow increase in in people in dentists who take that kind of functional approach as well?
2: Yeah. So, so I look at, word, well, I, I think there are some really, actually really quite established, um, organizations in dentistry. You know, one would be, the, you know, uh, mercury free dentistry. Um, and again, I think it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, again, w- whatever your thoughts on that. And, and again, one of the reasons why we wanted to do the oral DNA panel is that we wanted to include susceptible genotypes to mercury, um, Whilst I fundamentally believe that no one should have mercury amalgams in their mouth, it's not as simple as that. And so this is one of the key aspects of why we tried to work with some of the key mercury-free dentists to get that understanding that there are lots of nuances that go with having a person who is healthy enough to maybe go through the extraction process, the extraction process has to be done very much in a certain way because if it's if, ex, if its mercury amalgams are removed in an inappropriate way, that can definitely trigger off a whole host of issues um, but yes, I think they are i think there are some well established organizations um, but I feel as though there is that new wave of dent, you know, and whether you call it the mercury-free dentist or the biological dentistry um, side, where they're trying to think, you know, we can't just put fillings in, we can't just um, choose a, um, a, um, a material to put back in someone's mouth that maybe, again, creates an autoimmune response. We need to think maybe differently about root canals because, again, the evidence with regards to root canals becoming infective and causing problems, again, I think is pretty well known, uh, and yet we still do it. Mm. Um, and so I think there is there is definitely a groundswell on that. And, Tony, it comes down to, as I said at the beginning, there comes a point where you cannot ignore the science.
3: Mm.
2: And so you've either got to make a decision to ignore it or making a decision to go with it. What I appreciate is it's hard to go with it because you're going to have to upset that you're going to have to go down a pathway that maybe is different than you were before. And it's harder Mm -hmm. because you've suddenly got to think about a lot more scenarios with your patient. Mm -hmm. It's no longer, I'm just going to do the mouth and worry about that. Um, It is a question, well, what are the consequences of what I've just done? You know, and can I be speaking to other people who can refer into me, who understand what I want to do and what I need to do, but also I can be told a lot more about what needs to be done from my side? Mm. So, one of the key things that I'm taught to do, again, I've got a strong relationship with Dr. John Roberts, who's one of the uh, probably uh, certainly world leading and, um, and dentists in sort of mm. in biological dentistry. And w- we've been having these conversations for two to three years with regards to making more secure links with dentistry and absolutely i think it's got to happen Mm. but of course again the key thing is that you know it's it's um it's probably it's a bit like functional medicine i'm not going to say it's posh medicine but it is unfortunately in a situation where um it it is not medicine for the masses Mm. um because obviously well-trained clinicians are going to cost a lot of money um, and not only that it's you know you you take a patient on a journey back to wellness that could be could be 18 months mm. and and so uh, you know unfortunately biological dentistry is going to be the same um but the evidence is there
3: mm.
2: uh, and um you know i think just on some absolute you know basics is you know and i think if we take you back to the mercury aspects um it just, It's a bit crazy, really, that we've put such a toxic material in, in, some, in some people's mouths and expect it not to have an impact somewhere. Hmm. And so part of our genomics panel was to try and identify the canaries in the, in the coal mine from a point of view of mercury, because I was hmm. always keen to get an understanding. And we have many patients who come to me and say, should I have my mercury levels out? And my key for me is, is, is to go, well, number one, do we know that these mercury amalgams are affecting the patient? I think we don't. Hmm. But, you know, are we seeing signs and symptoms of something that could look like um, mercury poisoning over time? Hmm.
3: Um,
2: and how do we look at that and how do we test for that? But are we looking at a patient where they may have susceptible genetics to, Both exposure to mercury and then, of course, mercury detoxification, and then, of course, what we don't know is where does the mercury go? Mm. Um, You know, because obviously, every time you have a cup of tea or hot materials, you're going to create some degree of mercury vapor from that filling. Um, And so, there's lots and lots of nuances. I don't understand it all by any means. I don't think anyone does. Mm. But but what I've always wanted to do is be able to give my patients a more informed opinion with regards to um, mercury amalgams and their health, for sure. I would never advise some patient, yeah, get them all out, um, Mm -hmm. without really having done some decent due diligence on them. And that's what I've tried to do with regards to the the, the, add-on to one of the tests that we've made. We want to look at some of the known gene variants that are associated with problems with mercury. So if you've got a patient who's incredibly sick, you've got a patient that has all the symptoms, associated symptoms of a mercury overload. If you have a patient that has susceptible genotypes that you can test for, then you're bringing them more to a degree of clinical certainty that, yeah, okay, this might be a smart thing to do. And then you've just got to organize when to do it with the appropriate people. So, yes, I think, and again, I, I, I again, this brings us back to the question is, do, do I believe that much of the problem with people is that we just live in an incredibly toxic world? Absolutely.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: I think anything that were, you can um, daily, um, detoxify. And, and again, I want to be careful with using the terminology because I'm not a, you know, I'm not a guy who says, yeah, go and do, you know, go and do green juices every morning. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with green juices, of course, but that's not going to solve your detoxification issues, and and again, and so 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 being toxic. I think we've got to be very careful with the terms that we use, because again, it, it would be well. What do you mean by that? How do we measure it? And then what can we do about it?
3: Hmm.
2: Um, and so we've got to not use our terms loosely. Yeah. Um, but so that's why we've tried to be more and more clear. It's almost like build clinical certainty, almost like a clinical certainty tree that. We're giving our patient as much information as the, what we understand that, yeah, that might be a smart thing to do. But I think timing is also crucial on that as well is that I'm not keen on detoxifying people who are inherently sick mm-hmm. um, unless it's the last sort of gasp that they've got. Because any, any detoxification process is incredibly energy dependent. Mm. So um, you've got to be careful with certain people. And, of course, the detoxification process can make a lot of people much sicker.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's not something that you can, you can go into lightly, although, you know, if you looked on the internet, you know, you looked on the thing, everyone seems to be doing it. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's just a use of terminology. Um, yeah. But it comes down to fundamentally you've got to do the basics well. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, and even on that, I mean, people don't, just a simple example is people don't sweat anymore. You know, it's like, well, when's the last time you sweat? Well, I don't I don't sweat. So what, is that because you're not exercising or you're not exercising enough? No, just just you think, wow, okay, well, you know, that's definitely a detoxification route that we want to try and organise or you know, people are not going to toilet. Mm. Um is another aspect where we think on a very basic level, forget everything you've been told, let's just get your bowels moving. And then mm-hmm. we'll worry and that will help us. To you know, decrease your if you like your your toxic load, and mm. um, because your systems are working a bit better. Mm. So again, lots of nuances are, are around that.
0: Just going back to something you said probably about earlier on in the episode about people really need to take. Uh, it's very important to take care of the mouth and with regular cleaning and, and flossing and so on. So, if anyone who's now maybe concerned that they're not doing enough, what what would you say? is would be a good routine for taking care of the mouth
2: so i would say that that the most important thing is as you say going to the hygienist and the dentist for me is as important as keeping yourself fit it's the new gym
0: right
2: and so there's your starting position is Mm -hmm. that making the connection that dentistry is an incredible incredibly important aspect to your systemic health so you need to be attending the dentist, and the dental hygienist, regular. Mm. Um, it's a mistake I made. Never, well, as you say, is, 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 is that I never recognized the importance of it. So mm. that would be the number one, is that right. let's go and get a baseline. Let's go and speak right. to your hi- dental hygienist and get an indication of where you're at. The right. second thing then, is, again, is what do you do on a daily basis? And that is really is that you, you probably need to start spending more attention with regards to how you clean your teeth, when you clean your teeth and what else do you do are you using you know floss or are you using interdentals Mm. and 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 that would be the absolute basics of where you would start Um, and in many ways you know it's a bit laughable really is that we've built all this program we've built all this training and sometimes you just need to have a test for an individual to go and that's why you really need to start cleaning your teeth well every day so People come to us expecting you know, that we're, because we're quite an established practice that we're going to do all this sort of super cool testing and that's going to reveal everything, Tony. And there's no doubt we can do that. Mm-hmm. But it still comes back to before you spend all your money, let's get some fundamentals that you are doing the fundamental basics well. Yeah. And because there, that is where you're going to get the biggest results, the biggest bang for your buck on this journey. Do the fundamental basics well. Hmm. Get in contact with your dentist. Go and see the hygienist because that physical daily removal is so crucial. Hmm. Because you know what the plaque—the plaque is a plaque and tartar on your teeth is an established biofilm. It is an established city of bacteria, and uh, bacteria—they've been—they've been been on this planet much much longer than we have, Hmm. so they are incredibly smart. And when they find a nice place to live, like on teeth or below the gum margins, they start doing this thing called quorum, quorum sensing. What that means is they start going, hey, we're building a really great house here. Do you want to come and live in our, in our community? And so they, all these other bacteria start going, yeah, that sounds great, and start living with it. So mm-hmm. this is why being physical removal of, of plaque is so important because you're moving these really tough residual houses that your bacteria have built and it's mm. an ongoing process and unfortunately with teeth why teeth it's so so difficult with teeth is that they don't shed so teeth for teeth mm. they don't renew they are what they are and, and and that's where you know the actual your mouth actually has a much thicker um layer than the gastrointestinal tract but its weakness is always where the teeth are because that gives you the entrance potentially below the gum line and also the entrance for bacteria into the body. And so the physical removal of those are so, so important from that. And then you could get into you know making sure that, again, over time that the diet becomes more and more prominent. You are eating, again, a very much a sort of Mediterranean-style diet that has lots of these phytochemical compounds, these polyphenols that actually... Change the the health of the microbiome in the mouth, and therefore, in very simple terms, you're generating more um, more good guys than bad guys. You're offsetting that. So again, this is where various aspects of diet matter.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I think there's lots of evidence now coming out with regards to uh, mouth breathing um, and understanding the importance of. Trying to breathe in a different way, not so much not so much um, um, for, from a mouth breather, and we're definitely seeing evidence of people who um, are mouth breathing at night. You know, and, and you'll see this much more in in type two diabetics, in you know patients that have a tendency to more overweight then they're more susceptible to having changes in the microbiome from a point of in the oral microbiome from a point of view of you know you're going to change that environment that is more likely to be to be bad guys there. Mm. Um, and and so it really is you know do some of the fundamentals first and then think about the sort of secondary that needs to go behind that but it always comes back to basics for me you, you know i think people think as you say yes we can do tens of thousands of pounds worth of testing all well and great but it comes down to the basics are you doing the basics well um, and if you're not why is that and again we, we taught we taught at the beginning is that sometimes because they have unconscious behaviors that they don't know they're doing And you've got to get on top of those over time as well.
0: Well, I want to get get into that in just a minute. But before we get into that, um, I'm wondering about mouthwash and a microbiome. And also you you talked about uh, mouth breathing and how much of a how detrimental is mouth breathing to the bacteria in the mouth? as well. uh,
2: It's a really good question. I I think on on what we're and and this is, again, new to me. and, And this was just exposed to me by working with some of these dentists is that. Um, my, if you use my example, um, who is desperate, always desperately, you know, I eat a good diet, I exercise a lot, um, you know, I'm doing all the right things. And yet, you know, I'm a genetically susceptible person to periodontal disease. But, you know, the dentists are starting to think for me, and they've, they've had a look at the way my structure, my jaw is, my windpipe, and we've done all these x-rays. Um, and they potentially believe that some of my problems are because maybe I mouth breathe at night. Mm. Um, and so they are—they are absolutely clear that the more you mouth breathe, the more potential you have that you're changing the microbiome um, mm. within the mouth. Right. So it—it it, it does seem to be problematic, yes. Mm.
0: And the mouthwash question.
2: So the mouthwash question again. I think it's a—I think there's a few nuances around this. Um, there are there are certain mouthwashes that contain certain chemicals. One of them is called chlorhexidine. Um, that actually w- it has a potential to wipe out a lot of the bacteria on the back of the tongue.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but again, remember, every place will have a microbial group that are sort of doing things. Um, and what we've learned on that is that, in, in, and it was actually an English study about four years ago, showed that um, the bacteria on the back of the tongue, um, if affected by mouthwashes that have chlorhexidine in, can actually change the way um, these bacteria change nitrates from foods. So we have all these foods, beetroot would be a really good example, that produce these nitrates. And what those bacteria do is they start the process of, ch- of changing nitrates into nitric oxide. Now, mm. nitric oxide in the body in good levels is incredibly valuable, yeah. particularly from a point of view of um, um, uh, vascular tension, arterial mm. tension. And yeah. what we know is that nitric oxide becomes this incredible sort of protective gas For the arteries and the cardiovascular system and of course if you're eating foods and trying to get the nitrates on it and you've disturbed the the bacteria that do that then the evidence suggests that you're going to have it potentially have increased blood pressure Hmm. so yes i think is that every time we put chemicals in our mouth we have to think about whether that chemical has an association with potentially changing the microbiome so the more we go away from food as mother nature and grandma wanted us to eat i think the the potential increased risk exists from from that
0: perspective so so is there are there safe mouthwashes
2: there's lots there's so many again there has been a, an explosion of um dentistry and um, products that are associated with helping the oral microbiome with um helping and and particularly fluoride again fluoride is, a, is is another argument and there are i mean i mean i mean so again there's a big argument about fluoride there's no doubt that fluoride reduces um dental cavities no doubt about that hmm. but are there alternatives to fluoride that show up just as well i think the answer to that is yes we've seen mm-hmm. a lot of the research over the last 20 30 years from from japan mm-hmm. um looking at um, a bone compound called hydroxyapatite, and so there are lots of, you know, um, integrated dentistry products now that are sort of saying, well, you know, fluoride is fundamentally designed for this. We know our product is natural; it has no side effects or potential side effects, and, and it stacks up against fluoride. So, why wouldn't you use it?
1: Mm.
3: Well,
2: I know that the difficulty with this, of course, they cost a lot more, mm. and there are sort of some brilliant products that we use that are herbal related for some brilliant companies um, that clinically give us incredible outcomes, but again, they're expensive. Mm. So, you know, if, if money's not an object, then those products are out there. There mm. are oral microbiome mouthwashes that you can take at night. Again, great products make a lot of sense. They're looking and, and almost what you're looking at is you're identifying the sort of the, 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 the good bacteria that goes to war with the potential pathogen. And right. so what these companies are doing is that we know these bacteria or these bacterial groups actually will go and dislodge or displace or kill these other groups. Right. And so, you know, you get a lot of oral probiotic um, products that are being built now. Mm. Um, and I've used them all. We, I mean, you know, I have an oral mouthwash at night that is a probiotic that, mm. again, swill it around my mouth for, for, for a minute and swallow it then so i get the benefits of it you know down the gastrointestinal tract um and yeah seems they seem to work so there's absolutely loads of companies starting to enter this space again i bring you back to why are they entering the space is because the science is there right and so whilst you're going to get the naysayers while you're going to say that that, that that's not correct you can always go back say well you know where are you coming from because the science is here to suggest that this product is as good if not better than fluoride and we don't have to worry about any potential toxic side effects to that right so uh, the world's changed on that side mm. um, you know the, but the only thing i would say but they do cost more yeah and there's always a sort of cost implication to anything that we do it's mm. a bit like you know reg- regular dentistry trips it's mm. going to cost you a bit more but how much more of that trip has been associated with a point of view of this might have been for susceptible individuals one of the most important things that they can do for their ongoing health.
3: Right. And
2: so that's where you identify the susceptible individuals. It's a bit like that rheumatoid arthritis patient.
3: Mm-hmm. Is
2: that her biggest biggest thing to protect her health going forward, to keep her rheumatoid pretty much in remission, is that she's on top of going to see the dentist that I wanted to see on a three monthly basis so that we know we've got everything under control and we're calm on that allows me to do my job much, much easier as well. So what I, you know, you, you start to get an individual where you can identify with an individual, what is the most important place for you to spend your money on your health? Hmm. And so, again, I think that is understanding that well allows you to, to really individualize and personalize that, that patient's, that patient's program on that side
0: you touched on behavioral science just now and and you know we we before the episode before we started recording we were talking about when you first became a function medicine practitioner and and how much you've learned since then about the importance of behavior and so on so and i thought it was fascinating what, what you said could so could you maybe uh talk about that
2: so yeah i i think there's a uh... I wonder why, sometimes patients come in and they've been, you know, they have an indoctrination with regards to how medical care should be.
3: Mm-hmm. So I
2: think whenever a patient comes in, you have to understand where the biases are coming from. And I don't mm-hmm. mean that in a horrible way. But if you've only known the dentist and the NHS, you're indoctrinated to, that. well, this is how medicine works. When patients come to us with chronic diseases that, that have, you know, that have, that have been there for a very long time, we we try to try and always make sure our patients understand why why they've arrived, and, and that will be because they will have genetic susceptibilities that have been um, exaggerated based on the way they've lived their lives. Hmm. As a strong component of that, Tony, how they live their lives are usually down to the behaviours that they've created, mainly unconsciously, of how they lived their lives. So let hmm. me give you an example. I dealt with uh, um, a head of a very large organisation. She was the and there's a word for it, and I cannot remember it for now. But there's the the head legal person mm-hmm. of a huge international corporation, and here was a, a man completely on the edge. But his be and completely on the edge at work, completely on the edge when he went home, and so and this man's looking for answers for me to solve but as I said to him I said look let's look at some of your behaviors of how you live your life you go to work you have an incredibly stressful job and as a consequence of that because of the stress from work and the time you've got to spend at work you've got some relationship breakdowns at home because you're never there Mm. and so you've gone from one fire straight into another fire you know Where's the chance that you get just a little bit of serenity in your life?
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: daily, where do you find the quiet time? You don't. You go from mm-hmm. one trauma to another trauma. And that's fundamentally, those behaviors are some of the fundamentals that are driving your sickness.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: until we make some behavioral changes on those, we can't get you to where you want to get. And mm-hmm. you're going to have to make some changes and you're going to have to upset that one. Because I will tell you where we'll be in six months if we don't do that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We'll get you better to an extent, but we won't get what you're expecting. Because mm-hmm. m- in, in many ways what we see, and we talked about this, Tony, didn't I? I, I said that as a, as a very established practice and experienced practice, I'm more, on, I'm, I'm more interested in who is the patient. How does the patient, does the patient exist? What is their life like? Mm-hmm. I'm less interested in the disease. Mm. I understand the mechanism of the disease, but what Mm. I don't understand is what behaviors drive those mechanisms to be more exaggerated. And Mm. until you understand who your patient is, you're never fully going to get the resolving of everything because Mm. you've got to let them know that these are the primary drivers of why they're in the disease process. Mm. And until you get the ability to change many of their behaviors, and a lot of them will be unconsciously led hmm. and we 've been very fortunate to also to be able to de- to dive into some of the the genetics with regards to behaviors, why people do certain things, and you know and that 's down to dopamine systems that 's down to understanding serotonin that 's down to understanding some of the um, some of the um, neurocognitive um, 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 genes like BDNF and getting that much greater understanding is, you know, why is this guy never happy when he's just on a major deal? Why has he got to move on to the next major deal? And the reason is that is because he has gene variants that mean that he's, he, he's, he can't celebrate because his glass is always empty genetically. Yeah. And so some of his behaviours, again, are unconsciously driven simply because his genes are dictating that. And you put those gene variants into a stressful environment and you see them play out and you see them more exaggerated and and play out. So the skills of a clinician for me, and I never take a patient on um, unless they have a robust understanding that I need to understand the story behind the story behind the story Mm -hmm. because it's usually the story behind the story behind the story that are the behaviours that are driving the illness. Yeah. And, and, and that's absolutely crucial. And we've learned, I've learned, you know, as I say, I've seen thousands of patients over many years and I've made many mistakes on that. Mm. And you just get to the point now where you've been doing it for a long time that you've got to be true to yourself and you've got to be true and honest to your patient to say, unless you're ready for us to do that, we're not potentially going to get the outcomes that you're expecting. This mm. is not a transactional relationship. Mm. I, need to, I need to understand you. Mm. I need to understand how you think on a daily basis. I need to understand the stresses and strains behind you, you know, and understand that because if I don't understand you and what goes to make you here on this day, I will never understand how I get you better.
0: Right.
2: And so, so we are less about the disease. We are more about understanding the patient. You've got, like, everything. You have to be able – patients cannot come to see us without accepting that they are going to have to make some changes by the way they lose their lives. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Um, that said, a lot of patients who maybe are new to um, functional medicine may be getting the wrong um, – view of what functional medicine is oh we'll do these new cool tests you'll give me some supplementation and you might change my diet and everything's going to be sorted mm. i would say couldn't be any further from the truth although a lot of what you see on social media and on the internet will give you that impression it's yeah. as easy as that yeah it, it, it it's never as easy as that no. um, we never see that mm. and, and 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 so as you say there's got to be an acceptance and you've got to be able as you say be honest with your patient about what the journey looks like and what the time frame looks like and you know, what their role is going to be because mm. one of the other key aspects I will say to them is it's not my role to get you better. You have to be the captain of your own ship and mm. you have to be ready to make changes. I can't do that for you,
3: mm.
2: you know, and I won't do that for you. So you can pay me as much money as you want. I can even remember a, an investment banker said that he was going to give me triple, the amount of money that I want to get him the results that he wanted right. and I said you just don't understand the process I can't yeah. do it for you yeah you've got to be able to do that yourself I can't do that for you so mm-hmm. no amount of money is going to be able to change what I do as a practice because you have to be that you have to be the head of the change
3: mm-hmm.
2: I can't do that for you
3: yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, and so again this is the understanding of what is it all right Jess thanks man. What is it that sorry, my my little son just sent me a message. Um, what is it that is needed from that relationship to allow that relationship to work on a day-to-day basis and on a long term basis? And mm. I know you're you're moving into studying coaching at the moment and, and, and the behavioral sciences of it
3: mm.
2: absolutely crucial mm. for me, you know, being able to change people's behaviors are some of their most important breakthroughs that you'll ever make with a patient.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's less for me about what the testing tells us. The testing is a reflection of their genes, their environment and where their life is. Yeah. And so results on the test, how no matter how bad, aren't what solves the patient's health. Yeah. Understanding why those results are there and what has brought us to this point mm-hmm. and the story of this patient. Is what fundamentally will get them better.
0: Yeah how do how do you see medicine and the approach to medicine changing in the next sort of five ten years?
2: Well, I think you're always going to have two sides. You're going to have the acute medicine side. I don't think that needs to change. I think it's incredible. You know, if you go outside and get smashed by a car, you're going to want that emergency acute medicine style and that is going to save your life. You know, if you come in, you've you developed sepsis, then you, know, you might need a week's worth of intravenous antibiotics. They're going to save your life. Mm. I, and, and so that acute medicine, it's funny, I was having a conversation with a, um, with a pharmacist about this um, this morning. But even with that, I think there is going to be a bigger thought process that goes around that now. And I think that's slowly changing. So yes, you know, what do we need to do now to keep this patient alive? Well, we're going to pump them pump them um, full of life saving antibiotics that save them, but then there's going to need to be a conversation and say okay well, we we get them through the initial bit, so but we just need to think about the potential consequences that all those antibiotics might have done to the microbiome right. uh, and I think there is a, there are signs that people are thinking about that way. Right. I would like to think that that acute medicine is going to start having system thinkers like you know like myself would say well that's all well and good but you know if we've not taken care of these other aspects this patient may be back with a chronic illness in th- in three or four years because we never dealt with that yeah sure we kept them alive but then we've given them another disease and
3: right.
2: um, there is no doubt i think covid has accelerated people's perceptions that the nhs isn't going to solve all your issues and I don't mean that from the NHS is a wonderful service, but they are designed to do things in a certain way.
3: Mm.
2: And and from a point of view of taking care of lifestyle, they're not really set up for it. Mm. So what I also think on that is I think we have to wake up and take responsibility for our own health. Mm. Now, I get it why we don't. It's because we have been indoctrinated in the system that we go to the doctors and then we go to that and they solve our health. They don't. <laughs> and I think that needs to change. Yeah. Um, you, and you're going to have to look after yourself and you're going to have to spend a bit of cash on yourself. It is what it is. I don't see any way out of that. Mm. But what I also see through COVID is that people are starting to wake up, you know, through the trauma of COVID to say, well, you know, I'm not going to be seen for a couple of years here. The NHS just can't do it. So, you know, maybe I need to start taking charge of myself. Mm. So I think that's one of the great things about it. And um, So, I see system thinkers um, becoming more and more um, into very acute care medicine for sure.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: I also see conventional medicine um, and whether that is you know GP practices bringing in uh, or having a a, a a arm of them where they are sending the acute patient. so we have quite a few GPS who may be um, um, can't deal with really complex cases of of lifestyle, um, and they either give us a quick call, and you know we're always happy to have a conversation with them, or indeed they send their patients to us. Um, so, I, I think there's more and more, and and I think what's quite interesting about this is it's that you know not all the best system thinkers are traditional MDs. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a medical doctor. Um, but you know, I've had 25 years of being able to think in a certain way and you can immediately sort of come into an an, an acute care, uh, situation and go, well, you know, okay, I get that, but we've got to think about X, Y, and Z for this patient as we go forward. Hmm. So I think, um, it's more and more becoming more normal, Hmm. more accepted. And I think again, that is because I always like to start fundamentally from, is the science to back this up? And if there is, great. Okay, so how do we integrate that? And that's always my starting point. My starting point is, is the science robust enough that this is a pathway you can go down? Yes. How does this integrate into this big system of you being the conductor of an orchestra? And what you're trying to do is work out what parts of this orchestra is, is broken and not playing great music, Um, And how do you make these integrations, make these pattern recognitions, make these different systems all start to play slightly sweeter music over time? There's a huge role for that. Mm. But also within that, that's how I see certainly our group's role. But within that, you may occasionally need the consultant in the woodwind because there's a few few nuances in the woodwind section that you just maybe not understand or there's something wrong in the strings and you're going to need to go to the you know to the cardiologist or to the gynecologist to say look here's our patient you know here's we need a little bit more help on on your aspect and -hmm. then be able to just continue to oversee things from a point of view of okay we've had that done so how how does the music play at the moment Mm -hmm. so i do think there is there is there has to be more integration because I think there are some incredibly smart people out there mm. who can be incredibly helpful for healthcare. Mm. And, and, and I think there's a recognition of that as well that, you know, I think if you look at some of the stuff that Cleveland Clinic in the U.S. is doing, um, you know, you're starting to see very much um, different medical models coming into what we would consider conventional medicine. Mm. Um, and, 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 understanding where, where, where does this fit within this sort of chronic disease picture that again is, are, are diseases of lifestyle yeah, yeah, um, and you can't solve that in, you know, in acute care, it's, yeah. it's impossible to do. So you've got to have an understanding of, well, you know, how do we take this patient through this process over, over a long period of time?
0: Ooh. Pete, there's, there's probably about a hundred more questions I would love to ask, but I want to be respectful of your time because it's um we've we've gone way over the hour mark now. So, if people want to find out more about you, where's the best places for them to look?
2: Ah, uh, good question. I think very simply, um, um, probably our website, um, Functional Medicine Associates, which I can um, I can leave the details on that. I think that's probably the the best place to um, to engage us. I would have thought. Yeah,
0: that's probably. Um, are you or anyone in your practice active on social media uh
2: we are yes and no i think is the answer to that um we t- we we it's funny we're, we're having a conversation about that at the moment about um should we become more we we ebb and flow with social media right. um, so we do have some social media channels um but sometimes we fall in love with it and then fall out of love with it so right. so we definitely got a presence um <laughs> Um, We would love, if anyone wants to sign up to, we, we, I mean, you know, we've always been a practice where we've just been in the trenches. So it's not really been as important for us, but we are accepting that. I mean, you know, even after in some degree, we've been going 20 years, we still don't have a, we still don't have a a newsletter. Um, And so we've been slow to that side Mm -hmm. um, because we've been so sort of head down in trying to understand people that, you know, sometimes we forget the sort of bigger marketing picture.
3: Right. Um,
2: but we, we're we definitely trying to become better at it, Tony. We're, we're absolute novices at that. So <laughs> so we, we, we would like to, we would definitely like to get better at it for sure.
0: And just before we finish, is there, um, is there a quotation that comes to mind that you particularly like?
2: Uh, there is. Um, and it's always for me. So I hope this um, doesn't offend anyone, but it really is the shit stops with you. (laughs) And what I mean by that is that you are the captain of your own ship as far as your health. And if you're not the captain of that ship, um, then I think that, you know, is is always problematic. No one else, as you say, you have to take charge. And so that's always been my, I, I think that's always been my key fundamental in life is that, you know, is that if you want things to change, you have to drive it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and particularly from the health perspective, because it's a key message that we always say to our patients is that, uh, you know, number one, you have to be ready for change. And we've got to, we've got to look at, well, what, you know, what does change look like? And, and be, you know, again, when you're goal setting, to be realistic about what that change looks like.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But you've, uh, one of the other key lines that I say to my patients is if I'm having to do more work than you on your, on your file, and there's something wrong with that relationship.
0: Right.
2: So, yeah, so um, there the are probably a, a few there were. you know, they're the, some of the key messages that we, we need to give to our patients because, uh, you know, again, I, I, know, I know you're doing a lot of the behavioral side and, and, and there are sort of, you know, there are stages of, of people wanting to engage in behavioral change, mm. but maybe are not quite ready. Mm. And that's okay you know we've we've sent many patients away because we they're just not quite ready for what they need to do for yeah. the outcomes they're expecting
3: yeah
2: and and that's okay as well because obviously we we tend to go through stages of readiness for change yeah. and some people just aren't at that stage to do it and mm-hmm. what i would say tony is that when they are i'm not going to say it's easy but it sort of is quite smooth it's quite a smooth process
3: yeah
2: you know this doesn't seem to be many many sort of um, it's not problematic it tends to move smoothly because what you're implementing your patient is doing because they're ready Hmm. and suddenly it's like is it really this easy Hmm. and and sometimes it is it's ridiculously easy simply because they've decided that it's time for change and they're doing exactly what you're saying and with that becomes all these results
3: Hmm.
2: and so you know i think if only we could have a practice where everyone who comes to that practice is ready because, and, you know, almost, we we almost think about, you know, maybe we should just have people and almost vet them so that, you know, it makes those look amazing because, you know, it's easier. It's much, much easier when people are ready. Yeah. yeah. Um, And it just makes the journey so much more efficient, less time consuming, less expensive because they've done exactly what you've told them to do you know and, and then suddenly you know these results are coming
0: really really quickly well pete i would love to have you back for for a second episode at some stage because i i know there's so much more information that our listeners would love that you'd be able to help them with so um Pleasure. Yeah. so yeah thank you very much it's been it's been really informative fascinating I'm, i could think of a thousand other adjectives but it's been yeah i've really enjoyed it thank you Next week Habits and Health episode 36 with Justin Franson. Justin is an athleticism performance coach and he's worked with amateur and professional athletes for the past two decades and he's seen athletes breaking down from the excessive levels of EMF from their smart watches, wireless earbuds and electric cars and he's tested hundreds of homes and clients and he sells grounding and Farad- Faraday bags at doctor clinics throughout the US and in many other countries as well. And we talk about EMF and the, the dangers and the problems that it's causing and about moisture, uh, moisture and magnetic properties in the ground and how they repel EMF. And many other areas around that whole topic. So that's next week, episode thirty-five with Justin France. And hope you've enjoyed this week's episode with Pete Williams. If you know anyone who would really get some real value from this, please do share the episode with them. Hope you have a great week. Thanks for tuning in to the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Sign up for email updates and learn about coaching and workshop opportunities at tonywinyard.com. See you next time on the Habits and Health Podcast.